So in, in this, it's a real small section of scripture, there's at least three things that cannot be ignored. Of course, the, the primary one that Paul is getting at at this point is the case for his apostleship. Okay? And then, of course, it's the truth of the gospel itself. And then there's something that comes out in it uh, that is not stated, but it's there uh, for us as an example, uh, for us to understand, and that's that responsibility, uh, that the responsibility and accountability of Christian leaders, it is to teach and to represent that truth. They're accountable to that, and, uh, and Paul certainly held Peter to that standard. So the case for Paul's apostolic authority is essential because if he does not possess that from the Lord Jesus himself, Understand that none of his New Testament writings have any bearing upon us. Do you understand that? Not the apostle of Jesus Christ. None of his writings have any bearing upon us. In fact, none of his writings should even be in the New Testament if he isn't who he says that he is. Okay? So Paul's case uh, here in the text is essential. And this section is essential to the truth of the gospel because it demonstrates that and sanctification, that is, coming to Christ for salvation and then living for Christ after salvation are not dependent on our obedience to the law of Moses, not to any of it. We're saved by grace through faith and the life that we live after salvation, Paul says, should continue by faith. You buy it. And then finally, the story demonstrates that with greater position and authority comes greater responsibility and accountability. That thing is a devil. It was, uh, we might say it was because of who Peter was as an apostle that made his actions so condemnable, okay? So let's get into the exposition. Um, I'm going to be addressing the section as a whole rather than line by line, which we usually do. And I think it will come across better that way uh, in this setting. So for whatever reason from the text, we know that Peter had gone to the church north in Antioch in Syria which was a church predominantly made of Gentiles. It was, a, it was really a non-Jewish church. There were Jews present, you know, Paul and Barnabas were among them and many others, but the majority of the church consisted of Gentiles. And when Peter came to town, he came to an interesting context where Jewish believers and Gentile believers were enjoying meals together. What's the problem with that? The problem was that these Gentiles had not joined the local Jews for a nice Jewish meal. That's not what was happening. The local Jewish Christians were at a nice Gentile meal, contrary to the diet that is prescribed in the law of Moses. And then instead of rebuking the Jews, the apostle Peter joined them. He joined them, which because of his prominent position further affirmed and it normalized the practice. By his example, communicating, that Jewish Christians were free from the Old Covenant dietary regulations and Gentile Christians had no obligation to it whatsoever. Okay? And according to the, the grammar in verse 12, this wasn't Peter's first time. Eating with the Gentiles was his habit. Now at the Jerusalem in Acts 15, which we discussed last week, uh, this issue was settled over whether or not Gentiles had to keep the law of Moses, which all of the apostles by the direction of the Holy Spirit, they said, absolutely not, none of it, okay? But whether or not a Jew had to keep the law of Moses, this was never discussed. But the issue had actually been settled back in Acts chapter 10, and Peter was staying at Simon the Tanner's house, and uh, he was sleepy before dinner, 
And so he's on the roof and he is having a vision that is given to him from Christ. And in the vision, clearly commands him that Gentiles and their food was no longer to be considered unclean. No longer. And then later in the chapter, in obedience to Christ, Peter, he went and stayed in the home of a Gentile named Cornelius, and Peter ate with him. Clear back in Acts 10. Now in Acts 11, when Peter returned to Jerusalem from Cornelius' house, it says that the Jews confronted him saying, you stayed with a Gentile and ate with him? Yeah, he did. And in Peter's defense, he told them about what Jesus said to him in his vision. And the Jews at their time were temporarily appeased, but the issue was never cleared up definitively. Okay. Now, Peter may have tried to get the conversation rolling in Acts chapter 15, verses 8 through 11, when he uh, spoke uh, at the Jerusalem council. And in his, uh, his speech, he addressed the legalists, who have later become the, the Judaizers. And he says to them that God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles by his grace, just like he did us. He says, so why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither nor we were able to bear? So he's basically saying that no Jew has ever kept the law of Moses. Not one, except Jesus. Okay? No Jew has ever kept the law of Moses. So why would you tell the Gentiles to keep the law of Moses? You can't do it. So why would you have them do it? And then he says to do be to test God, which is actually something that's forbidden in the law of Moses. So they were actually violating the law of Moses by imposing the law of Moses. Interesting contradiction, right? But we never see those contradictions in ourselves. Yeah. So Peter at the council may have tried to get the conversation rolling, but not. And so now that Peter is in Antioch and he's once again eating with the Gentiles in accord with his vision, he has an opportunity, but he doesn't take it. And so after he's in Jerusalem, or not Jerusalem, but Antioch for some time, it says, then Jews came up from Jerusalem to Antioch. And because Peter was afraid of them for whatever reason, uh, perhaps he was afraid of what they might think of him because um, he wasn't being a good Jewish little boy, or they might, uh, what they might think about him, even perhaps they thought, or he thought rather, that they might tell on him. I'm not sure who they would tell the apostle Peter, but he's afraid. Okay. It's not a good motivator. And so he stopped eating Gentile food with Gentile believers, and then he would only eat with the Jews who had come from Jerusalem. Now, this is a serious problem, and it's not because Peter was being rude. Well, he was being rude. Problem. It's not the real problem. So because of Peter's actions as, uh, as the chief apostle, the other Jewish believers from Antioch were persuaded to do the same because of his position. And then the Gentile believers were compelled, some of your translations say forced, to adopt the dietary regulations in the law of Moses. Now, instead of starting the conversation with these Jerusalem Jews, Peter ran in fear. But we all know somebody that doesn't run in fear and is always ready to get the conversation going. And that's the Apostle Paul. And so in verse says that he, he got in Peter's face because Peter's behavior was to be blamed. His, his behavior was condemnable. So what was wrong with Peter's behavior? Okay. In verse 13, Paul accuses him of hypocrisy, hypocrisy, which led, then led to other Jews being uh, hypocritical. Uh, most stunning among them is Barnabas, 
Because remember, Barnabas, second to Paul, was the champion of bringing Gentiles to the faith. He was the champion of, of new covenant freedom. But because it was Peter, he was carried along into this, and he became a hypocrite with Peter. And in verse 14, all of the Antioch Jews of not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Notice, this is in relation to food. It's over the issue of food that they were not being straightforward about the gospel. Now, before we get into that, let's address the hypocrisy first. How was Peter being a hypocrite? Uh, as we said, on the surface, when you read verse 12, it appears that Peter was just being rude. You know, stop eating with the Gentiles and go eat with the boys back home. Okay, it was rude, but that's not Paul's contention. When Peter so quickly and decisively separated from the Gentiles, it gave the impression to the Jews from Jerusalem that he was the Jewish diet all along, but his breath smelled like bacon. Okay, there's a problem. So Peter's hypocrisy was actually an act of deception, making the Jews think one thing about him when he was something totally different. So concealing true character is what Paul meant by hip. And when you look at the Gospels, when Jesus talked about the Pharisees being hypocrites, it, it, the, he's using the word to mean that they were hiding their true character, which was evil in nature. Okay? So Peter fooled the Jerusalem Jews through his hypocrisy, but what about him deviating from the truth of the Gospel? You see, when Peter, a Jew and an apostle, ate Gentile food with Gentile believers, he was communicating that the Jews were no longer obligated. When he was with those Gentiles eating Gentile food, he's telling all of those Jews that they're no longer obligated to keep the law of Moses, which is true. And then when Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles and would only eat with the Jews from Jerusalem, his actions communicated that New Covenant believers, both Jews and Gentiles, were required to observe all of these diets found in the book of Leviticus. You're required to do this, essentially, if you want, okay? In order to be well-pleasing, as Peter was, they would have to get the diet right. That is a perversion of the gospel. It's a perversion, okay? Peter was a hypocrite who strayed from the truth of the gospel out of, peer, out of fear, for which Paul in front of it says everyone. Now, I imagine, I think I know Paul well enough that he waited until Peter was enjoying a nice Jewish meal with all of his Jewish friends. And then he got in Peter's face. Because if there was one way to get that conversation rolling, it was then. Amen? And that was really Paul's style. Now, I've heard people complain, saying that, you know, Paul didn't follow proper procedure when he confronted Peter publicly, because he wasn't following Jesus's instructions from Matthew 18. Well, he wasn't following those instructions because those instructions do not apply in this circumstance. They do not. He addresses the protocol of confronting the sins of all believers in general. But Peter was an apostle who had heard directly from Jesus, who was now misrepresenting the truth of the gospel, and he was misleading an entire population of believers. So Paul actually did exactly what the commands regarding those in spiritual leadership Listen to what he says. He says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses, but those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of everyone, that the rest may also fear. 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 20. Spiritual leadership gets addressed in a totally different way than the laity. Okay? Peter, not Peter, but Paul was spot on 
in the way that he confronted Peter. Now, a question comes up, you know, how could Peter vacillate so dramatically uh, at this stage in church history, especially regarding something so precious as the truth of the gospel? Well, I would say first because it's Peter, and then also because he's like us. Amen? He's broken. He's weak. He doesn't have it all together. He's en route to that place. You know, we know from his history that in one moment of greatness, he was professing that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in the next, he was trying to keep Jesus away from the cross, which was the Father's will. In fact, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Now, he was talking about Satan influencing Peter's actions. He wasn't calling Peter Satan, although it, it appears to be that. At another moment, he was willing to die for Jesus, and then in the next, he was abandoning Jesus and denying him with a curse. So it, there's a little bit of this in Peter's history, okay, a little bit of it. He goes from strong and arrogant to weak and humiliated. I think that all of us can identify with that at some point in our Christian life. Amen? Peter's on his way. It was a weakness. And I think it was a weakness that he, he grew out of because we know from history that he fearlessly was murdered for the cause of Christ. There's hope for us. But because of who Peter was, an apostle of Christ, and because of what he had learned from Jesus, that Gentiles and their food were no longer unclean, there's just no excuse for what he communicated by way of his behavior. Peter and his actions needed to be confronted. And so Paul, being as, as wise and as surgical as he was, notice how he went straight to the top. You know, he didn't confront the other Jews from Antioch. He didn't confront Barnabas, which I think would have been effective, but it was more important to go straight to the top for everyone to see. I think it was the best way. It was the hardest way, but it was most effective. So he went to the most prominent, influential person in front of everyone. And then what he said to Peter is essential to the gospel for both Jews and Gentiles. Look again at verse 14, how he says this to him. He says, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel to live as Jews? It's almost like Paul is referring back to Acts 15. Now, didn't you say that we shouldn't put the yoke on the Gentiles because neither we nor our fathers could bear it? Aren't you, aren't you tempting God, Peter? That's crazy. Yeah. This could be said, you know, Peter, you don't live according to the law of Moses, so why are you compelling others to do it? You don't do it. Now, a number of things come out of Paul's question as it's related to the context. Now, Paul, is, he's addressed the hypocrisy of Peter as he was hiding his liberty in Christ from the Jews. He affirmed that Gentiles keep the law of Moses, and it was no longer necessary for Jews to observe the law of Moses. They're just as free as the Gentiles. You see, Peter, in that context, he should have just kept on enjoying his freedom in Christ even if the Jerusalem Jews didn't like it. Because by keeping the law of context, he gave the impression that it was necessary. He could have got the conversation going. He could have re-explained his vision in the direction that Christ was leading the new covenant people. But instead, he concealed it. And so at this point, Paul has, I think, most strongly made his case for his apostolic authority. Looking the great apostle Peter regarding an issue of essential doctrine, the gospel, Paul demonstrated that his authority was at least equal to Peter's. And that authority to Peter came from Jesus. So Paul was an apostle of Christ, and therefore the gospel that he preached was the gospel of Christ. It's time for the Galatian, Paul's authority, and to follow the gospel. But I think more importantly for us, 
the truth of the gospel was upheld and it was preserved by Paul's intervention. So I, please don't misunderstand or underestimate the real problem here in the text. The gospel of grace was in peril over the issue as it was related to Old Testament, Old Covenant dietary regulations. Think about that. The integrity of the gospel was in danger by something simple as food, something as food. Peter was compelling Jews. They were obligated to keep the law and it's com a complete deviation from the gospel. You see that the belief that new covenant believers are obligated to keep the old covenant regulations, dietary or otherwise, Paul is going to press very hard that this is a perversion of the gospel of grace. They cannot be mingled together. Now, I want to be direct about this as Paul was direct with Peter and about his position with all of this. You see, if the gospel of Jesus Christ was in peril over dietary regulations, if, if Peter was not being, as he says, straightforward about the truth of the gospel by compelling Gentile Jews, why do we today tolerate anyone or any religious organization that insists that we should avoid certain foods or that we should keep a particular diet? Why would we do that? In fact, actually, why are we doing that? Why do we have, as I've said before, a playful disagreement with those that would contaminate and pervert the gospel of Christ? Why would we do is it? Is it less of a threat to the gospel today than it was back then? I think this is very serious when it comes to the integrity of the gospel. It's no less of a threat. You know, uh, were puns petty or trivial? Was the confrontation with Peter unjustified? I don't think so. I don't think so. If you mingle anything with the gospel, it's a perversion of it. It's a perversion. If the gospel isn't all of grace, it's none of grace, and then it's no longer the gospel at all. If someone teaches grace through faith plus eating right, they've changed the gospel so much that it no longer saves. That's the point that Paul is going to make throughout the book of Galatians. If you mingle anything with it, it removes the power of the gospel. So listen, those, those who tell you that you should avoid coffee or tea in order to be well God, they themselves are not well-pleasing to God. They're perverting the gospel. Okay? Those who say that you should be a vegetarian to be a good Christian, they're not a good Christian. They're not a good Christian, if they're Christians at all. Those who tell you that you should keep the dietary regulations of the law of Moses, like they need to be rebuked just like Peter was. They're in the wrong. They're perverting. They're contaminating the gospel. You know, I've heard believers say that, you know, you shouldn't eat pork because the Bible forbids it. No, no. The Old Covenant says that. The Old Covenant does. And we're not in the Old Covenant. We're in the New Covenant, where it's, it's okay to have bacon breath, okay? It's okay to eat seafood. It's okay. And now that the New Covenant has been ratified in Jesus's blood, listen to this. The Holy Spirit expressly says that it's a teaching of demons to command people to abstain which God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. That's, that's 1 Timothy 4, 3. Now, I want to read the whole passage to you because I think I can feel some of you cringe when I say that that is a doctrine, a teaching of demons. It's 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Paul says, Now the Holy Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits 
and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Do you think the issue of food is a big deal? It's huge. It says, and let me be clear, for religious reasons that you shouldn't eat pork, shrimp, or meat, or coffee, or tea, is promoting a doctrine of demons. Don't be afraid to say it. It's a doctrine of demons. Okay? That's what the Holy Spirit says. And if Paul wouldn't tolerate it from the apostle Peter, we should never tolerate it among those who profess faith. The doctrine of demons. Now, if that's a doctrine of demons, I think it's okay to say that their intention is to contaminate, to progress. Don't let anybody do that. The, the gospel of Christ is all of grace. Anyone who says otherwise is at odds with God and his word. You know, I've said this before, that if Paul were alive today, he would just send a copy of Galatians to entire denominations and entire groups that call themselves, okay? It's like they don't even have the book of Galatians in their Bible. It's like they didn't get the memo, but it's here. And the word of God stands. And so Paul concludes, very interesting, in, in the last two verses we'll cover here in verse 15 and 16. He doesn't just say reference to the dietary regulations, but he makes reference to all of the Mosaic law. He says to Peter, We who are Jews by nature, by birth, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. You know, Paul says to Peter, as Jews we know, now according to the grammar, it's more like rather we've come to understand through the gospel that no one made righteous before God by their obedience to the law. And by law, Paul clearly means the law of Moses, okay? Where the dietary regulations are found, book of Leviticus. And he also says, and as Jews, we have believed that God considers us righteous through faith in Jesus, because he says, no one can be made right in the law of Moses. Now, it's at this point in Paul's letter that some abandon the context and cling only to the language that he uses, but the context must define this language, okay? We must remember that in the context, it was the believers in Antioch that Peter was compelling to keep the dietary regulations, okay? Be righteous. So these weren't potential converts. Peter wasn't trying to get anybody saved. These were disciples. So they weren't being compelled to get saved again. They're already saved. It's because of Peter's behavior. These men were thinking something like this. Now that we are saved, Peter is showing us how to live for God. That's Paul's problem here. That's his problem. So Paul's not talking about the imputed righteousness of Jesus to the believer that's necessary to get saved. That's, that's the discussion in Romans 3 and 4. Here Paul's talking about the practical day-to-day -day righteousness that we call God. Peter was making the disciples believe that God would consider them righteous if they kept the law of Moses, even though Peter didn't believe it. That's the sad thing in the text. But there's no single law and there's no amount of laws to keep by which God would consider anyone righteous. No one can keep the law of Moses to be saved. A saved person is considered righteous by God because they keep the law of Moses. It's neither. It's neither. 
Both ideas are a perversion of the gospel for which Peter was rebuked. As we know, I know I'm preaching to the choir that it's only through trust in Christ, both for salvation and sanctification, that God considers us righteous. But we'll get more to that next week. Let me review with you real quick, because I don't want to lose sight of our Paul's purpose and the context. And then I know you guys want to eat hamburgers, so. King Peter for doctrinal violations. Paul demonstrated to the Galatians, that he, the people that he's trying to recover, that his authority was equal to Peter's, okay? Equal. They needed to listen to him over the Judaizers. The story demonstrates that with greater position and authority should come greater responsibility. And finally, any addition to the gospel is a perversion of it, even if it's something simple like a diet, if it's food, okay? The gospel of grace is all of faith. Everything else out there is a false gospel. It's a perversion of truth. And so the exhortation for us is to stand like Peter, not Peter, but Paul rather. Let us uphold, let us defend, and let us live according to the purity and simplicity of the gospel of grace. You remember Paul was concerned about the Corinthians as well, that he was afraid that somebody had duped them and led them astray from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. It's all of grace. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, the enemy would love nothing more than to distort the gospel that saves and to integrate into it that which would deceive and contaminate and distract. Lord, there's nothing that we can bring to you. All we can do is trust you. We have no obedience to offer. We only have trust. Lord, I pray for my church family that the full of grace would embed itself in our hearts, in all of its simplicity, and all of its power, that we would not be swayed by any voice, Lord, that doesn't come from you, that doesn't come directly from your word. The gospel has not suffered change over the years. It's the same. And so, Lord, give us courage, give us understanding, and give us the ability to defend it. Lord, I thank you for my church family. Lord, I am so glad that we're together today, that we're worshiping together, that we're hearing your word. And Lord, now we get a fellowship and break bread together. I pray that our time is sweet and beneficial, that people would be encouraged, people would be invigorated in their faith. So Lord, we just love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.